Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is the Reverend Heidi Hankel. Heidi is a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary and is the pastor of Bethesda Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I give you Heidi Hankel. Heidi, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. How are you doing? Excellent. It's Monday. Indeed. You are a working pastor, so oftentimes Mondays are days off, but sounds like not for you today. No, I actually take Fridays off so I can try and get an actual weekend in there before I start my week again with a Sunday. So, yeah. That's we're, a, the we're one thing I don't tell you on in summary, you're going to work a lot of Sundays. Yeah, <laughs> almost all of them. You need to know that, right? <laughs> so, thanks for being here. We've got three fasting. We're just talking about three fascinating texts. These are great passages. Ruth. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and then 4, verses 13 to 17. Here we've got we've got the kind of, I think we only get two references to Ruth and Election. They give you the opener and the closer. So here we've got mm. the closer, where big things are happening, where, where Naomi, uh, you know, explains to Ruth that she's got security for her, go to kinsman Boaz and all this stuff, and uh, he, she goes and lies by his feet or whatever, which is the Hebrew euphemism. You know, uh, I remember hearing a sermon on this in Princeton Chapel, and he says, now the, in the original Hebrew it means, and everybody just starts laughing, because it's, <laughs> it's, I guess, a euphemism. So so here we go. So this is, a, a, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating text, right, and a compelling story. It really is. I mean, I think anybody can find a place that is relatable in this story. So... We are told of Naomi's back text of just she she loses everything. Um, the famine just destroys the whole entire world that she knew. Her husband, her sons, um, her daughter-in-laws leave her except for Ruth. And uh, for women in that culture, their sons, their children were their glory. And so Na- Naomi hasn't just lost her material things. She's lost any legacy that she's had. And... You know, she has this new surrogate daughter, and she is talking about, well, there's another one. You go be with him and see if we can't redeem this legacy. Now, you can come at it from a lot of different places in that story. Some may say, like, how dare she ask Ruth to even be a surrogate in this scenario? And yet, for Ruth, it was her joy and her glory to do this. It's an incredible story of brokenness and redemption. I mean, this is just so many ways you can go with this. Yeah, you know, one of the things I find interesting about it is it's this story that is incredibly redemptive, but like most of our everyday spiritual lives, nothing miraculous happens, right? There's no, this is not like reading the book of Genesis or Exodus where there's miracles around every corner and all this. It's, God is relatively silent. There's, you know, this is on the ground, if you're looking at this, just looks like another family that has some really hard times in the ancient Near East. And yet, it's a, a cosmic story because of, of what it winds, what this story leads to for Israel and the world. 
It is. And it, I mean, even in that context, you can take a look at it. It's also the foreshadowing of like God just branches in people constantly through adoption into his grace. But but with this, I mean, Ruth is also in the story too, where she has lost everything. She's lost her husband, any man that could speak of her to give her any type of voice in the world. And she decides to do this. So, I mean, these two women who really have nothing and no standing in the world actually decide that they're going to step in faith. And a lot of times we expect God to show up in those miracles. Like we think that's where the glory is. And God works through his people. And oftentimes it's simple steps of faith that just open up the new roads for him to move. So it's, you know, we have a choice of what we do with our own shame, our own brokenness, our own sin. It's not the final word. We get a chance to speak a word of redemption, of repentance, and do something with it. That is the act of faith, and that is what brings the glory of God coming through and manifest in this world. Absolutely, yeah. And I think what's interesting, when you talk about there's the glory in the faith, I mean, one way that you could preach this text, which is what I'm sure a lot of people do, is, okay, be like... Naomi, right? And when the chips are down, uh, you know, never quit. Or be like Ruth, who, when somebody needs you, you're present, and you're, you know, you know, the Golden Girls. Thank you for being a friend. You know, so, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and it's a great. Song. And you know, or be like Boaz, open to the stranger, right? But really, even though God is strangely silent, God is the hero here. I mean, God is sort of the one who is the deliver and i think that's where the story goes from the kind of horizontal to the vertical plane that mm-hmm. that, that it's not just uh imitation of a hero like aesop's fables but here you know boaz really is a, is a picture of the redemption that comes to israel and the world in christ you know that, that he, just just when we have nothing uh you know and and, and you know he has everything he trades places with us, you know, he identifies with us. And yeah. and there is, you know, you see pictures of that in all of these characters, you know, th- that redemption. You really do. You really do. I mean, there's, there's just a thousand directions to go here. Uh, it, it's also the story of God's people. Um, it's the story of people who have proclaimed themselves to be people of the faith. I mean, Ruth even comes back to this culture and they're all like, who is she? And Naomi says, oh, she's now one of us. I mean, these are people who have openly gone out in the society and said, we are faithful people and God's people. And at every part of the story, it's not about them. It's entirely about God. So even when the women come to Naomi in this passage and said, a son has been born to you, Naomi Naomi sees it as, no, this is really God. Yeah. (laughs) This is, he showed up. He did this. And it's just the fulfillment, the deliverance, the redemption, the prayer out of the utter loss and grief and brokenness is so powerful in the story. Yeah. And I think of, you know, in, in the Star Wars films, like in the, what was the first, the episode one, which was the one with Jar Jar Binks, which is awful. But <laughs> I, 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 you know, basically they had a version of that on the internet where they cut out every scene with Jar Jar Binks. Like the movie's better if you just cut Jar Jar Binks out. I mean, it, me thinks you're right. Those were not the best. But <laughs> What's interesting, though, in the prequel, you have this sense where, because you know the story about Luke Skywalker and everything, in, right. in the end of the of the first one, I think, when you have Anakin Skywalker as this little kid, or in the end of the third one, when, uh, th- the third, which is the one immediately before 
Episode four, The New Hope, which is the one we all think of in the iconic 70s. You're losing me here. (laughs) All the prequel ones that were bad, but they always had these scenes where you're like, oh, that's going to be Darth Vader, or or, that's going to be Luke and Leia, or, you know, with these scenes. And so I I feel like there's almost like that moment when, as you're reading this in in church, you know, you have this, a son has been born to Naomi, they named him Obed, Mm -hmm. he became the father of Jesse, Mm -hmm. the father of David. And so here you're like, oh, wow, this is the... You know, and, and it includes an outsider, the the, G, the 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 great king of Israel, and the great redeemer of the world, the son, the true son of David, all come from a story of outsiders that you know, one of which wasn't even in the family of God, yeah. you know, or, or, ethnically or nationally. Yeah, I mean that that's a whole other theme, and especially it's so poignant right now in our day and age. God's legacy is not through DNA. God's legacy is through faith. It's not going to change your life if you order that. I love when these people are like, I was wearing lederhosen, and now I'm wearing a kilt. I'm like, really? You were really wearing lederhosen every weekend? Like, <laughs> and this thing really changed your yeah. life that much? I mean, I, I, I'm going to say something that's a bit heretical here, but God is not American. Amen to that. He is a God of the faithful people. It does not matter who you are or where you come Heidi, from. Heidi, I've seen that painting where Jesus was with the founding fathers. <laughs> In the Constitution, you're kidding me. If he's not, if God's not married, why do they have that painting? Yeah. But I mean, that's a really poignant theme right now. I mean, especially if you're preaching gospel and you're preaching about this love one another as Christ has loved you. We're talking about another way of uh, kind of approaching this too is with if you're doing a theme of stewardship, it's November. We all love stewardship. Nobody likes to preach on it, but we have to. <laughs> Everybody likes when it's done. Nobody likes to bring it up. Right. One of the ways you could preach this, too, is the stewardship of our faith and how are we sharing our story with others. So with this, the question becomes, Naomi and Ruth have this story of incredible loss and incredible brokenness with them. Now, they could come back and they could hide. They could come back and try to stay undercover. They could go somewhere else where they, know, they don't, nobody sees their shame. But they come back and they decide to just accept it. They did, They come back in this place and they just say, this is what's happened. This is who we are. And in the middle of that, in their ability to share their own story of their brokenness, they are able to allow other people to step into it, including Boaz. And there is a stewardship of our story. And how are we sharing it? And how are we using it for redemption and allowing God the space to come into our lives to actually be the God of deliverance that we profess to believe in, but often try to hammer out our own solutions ourselves. So it's just uh, be interesting. Be an interesting take on it and spin on it if you have to do stewardship. At least you don't have to talk about money. So on to the book of Hebrews. Here we have Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 28. And you have this declaration that Christ didn't enter a sanctuary made by human hands, uh, but a, a more copy of the truth, but entered into heaven himself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself again and again, like the, you know, it's, as the high priest did at the temple, but uh, once for all. Uh, and... You know, this is, and it concludes this idea, just as it is appointed for mortals to die once after that judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those 
who are waiting. So it talks about Christ's return. It talks about his sacrifice and this idea that it's really interesting that he entered into heaven itself to appear on our behalf. Mm. Yeah. So here we are, not to beat a dead horse, here we are with, again, a theme of justification and redemption. I mean, he goes forward on our behalf. He takes our sin, our brokenness on us. And this is, I mean, Paul does a nice job of giving an explanation. The author gives an explanation kind of of this is how the justification and redemption of your sin works. And, you know, stop beating it over and over again. It's been redeemed. Now steward the grace that's given. Yeah, the once for all. It's very interesting, too, because, like, I think this whole, again and again in these passages in the lectionary over the past weeks, you see this image of priesthood and how Jesus Mm -hmm. is kind of greater than the temple priesthood because, you know, and he has, the author has all these great little tricks. Well, wait, he's like a bigger one than Aaron because Abraham had Aaron was loins and he had Aaron's priest was Melchizedek. So, yeah, he's after Melchizedek. But these these things where this is, yeah, there's a once for allness, a finishedness that is contrasted to this thing that, that most Jews would have. And, and Gentiles too, because they would have had temple sacrifices. They wouldn't have looked like Israel's, but, but this idea of temple sacrifice and priests and priestesses, this is, this is really deep in the ancient mind in a way that maybe even if you're Catholic or Orthodox, thinking about priesthood probably is not quite the same way as they would have thought about it in the ancient world. I agree with you. I, I absolutely agree with you on that. Um, I, I found as I read this, it spun me in a different direction. Um, and I don't know if your people want to preach on this, but it was just kind of a, it spun me in a different direction. I kept thinking about the fact that we as human beings often have a, a, a sliding scale between righteousness and shame. And usually when we are struggling with something, or especially when we're struggling with a person, we are somewhere on that scale of righteousness and shame. And we don't really know what to do with our shame, and we really don't know what to do with our righteousness. And whenever we get to the extremes on that scale, feeling so sure we're right, and or feeling so horribly ashamed that we can't do anything right, that that's when we get to the point where we start sacrificing Christ over and over and over again, instead of just giving ourselves grace, instead of receiving the grace and understanding we never could have done this we we can't get it right no matter where we are in the scale. We just can't, we come back again and again. Like we have to get ourselves pure and get ourselves right, especially as pastors, man. We struggle with this so much um, just along the scale. But this idea of coming back to a place of, you know, if Christ already went ahead and he already stood before the Father for our sin and he is just eagerly awaiting those who would follow him. I love that last line. He is waiting for those who will eagerly follow him. It changes our heart. I mean, at that point, it's got to be like, screwed up, feel bad about it, repent, and eagerly wait for him. I mean, the heart condition has to be one of expectation and eagerness in this instead of the struggle that we get into with one another and even with our own heart condition. But just yeah, kind of no, yeah, and I think you know, Luther says that our, God doesn't need our good works. Our, our good works aren't for God. They're for our neighbor. And, but but very often, yeah. right, unless you know this kind of assuredness you're talking about, then you're doing these things thinking that, well, you know, I'm really kind of, I'm helping my neighbor, really, I'm helping out myself and kind of work. It, it, Make myself feel better. <laughs> yeah, right. You're actually, actually really free. When you know this, you're actually really free for your neighbor mm-hmm. because 
you're delivered from the anxiety that you have to sort of accomplish your own redemption. Uh, so you have all that, uh, all those gigs freed up on your existential hard drive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And on the other side, how much energy do we spend beating ourselves up, you know, on just things we could have done better, things we feel ashamed about, and just so much energy expended. And I mean, the passage just says he he's already taken care of it. He's already did it once for all. You know, we, we need to move on from this. Yeah. Go ahead. What, how did it strike you? Oh, well, this, yeah, it's just funny because there's this, also this one, there's this book, I have it holding in my hand if people couldn't see it, uh, called Worship Community and the Triune God of Grace by James Torrance. And in it, he, one of the chapters, the first chapter is called Worship Unitarian or Trinitarian. And he talks about three models of worship. He says, he talks about uh, the Unitarian model and he quotes some 19th century figures like Von Harnack and a contemporary figure like John Hick and says, basically it says that we're all in the same boat, you know, just like the people in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. It's sort of like, uh, you know, Jesus relates to God. Paul related to God. You know, we relate to God. Everyone relates to God. He says it's very kind of individualistic and sort of, it's all on you to sort of, you know, in worship and spirituality to sort of, create your relationship with with god then he has this other model called the existential experience model he thinks about certain evangelicals in kierkegaard where basically christ did this thing back then so it's not just we're on our own christ did this thing back then so that we can do our thing now you know it gets yeah and then he says even that is kind of deficient he has this worship he calls the trinitarian model where uh what's happening in 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 worship is that it's not just Christ did this thing back on the cross, but he's continuing. He goes to heaven first. He's, he continues to be the great high priest for us mm-hmm. so that through the spirit, we are made part of the life of God through the priesthood of Christ. So it's not like God, it's not like Christ did his thing back then. And now we do our thing. It's like, even today as we worship, we worship on the basis of the priesthood of Christ and the, and the work of Christ. So that, so that when we feel like we don't know what to pray or, it, we feel ambivalent in, in our own worship spirit. That we, we have the the true high priest praying for us, worshiping for us in the presence of God. It's very when I read that book for the first time, I was like, yeah, this is a different way to think about yeah. what goes on in worship and what goes on. You know, the priesthood of Christ is not just some idea; it's actually what makes our worship something that's truly trinitarian and, and out of this world. Yes, even when it looks very ordinary. And it- it's a whole other concept, too. I mean, often in worship, we think of Christ up front on the cross, or we think of him, you know, as up on high on a throne. We don't really think about the fact he is in worship with us yes. before the Father. I mean, we don't even conceive of the fact that the saints and the angels are in worship with us. But I mean, the fact that our, the priest, the one that we come to with our heart, the one we confess to, the one that we have direct access to, he is in worship with us. That's powerful, Scott. It's real powerful. Speaking of Jesus, let's go to the gospel reading. Oh, nice transition. I I do that one too often, but... (laughs) So here we have Mark 12, verses 38 through 44, and Jesus saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk, who like to walk around in long robes, be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and have the best seats. And that, that, that basically that's not, you know, they devour widows' houses for the sake of appearance, and they say long prayers. And he says, you know, he's 
saying all this, why, opposite the treasury, watching the crowd put money into it, and these rich people are putting in large sums, and this poor widow comes and puts in two small copper coins, which the text says are worth a penny. And he tells his disciples that this poor widow has given more because she's given out of her out of her poverty. While they've they've give, they've have abundance, they contribute out of their abundance. She gives out of her poverty, uh, and so that that's mm-hmm. a different kind of of gift that yeah. you know she's So that's really this interesting contrast. He's sort of like he's telling them this and go, all right, well, let me just show you. Look over there. <laughs> yeah. Just an aside, when I don't feel like wearing my pastoral robe, I often will jokingly quote the very first verse of this, beware the scribes that walk around in long robes looking for respect. (laughs) Exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, This is another story here where it's a person who has very little, likes to nothing. And um, it's not not necessarily too that she comes up and, and gives the two cents and compared to like the largeness. I mean, I know we stress that again during stewardship part of the year, but it's, I mean, she takes her brokenness and makes it an offering. And I mean, you can see where I'm going to preach around this Sunday, but she takes um, the place that is the source of shame. Her poverty hers is the public shame. And she just takes that and gives that to God, which is a totally different way of thinking, what offering are we bringing to God? Because often we think like it should be the best. It should be the first fruits and things. Guess what? God also wants our shame. He wants our brokenness. He wants our confession. You know, all those things belong in the offering all of our life. Um, different, Different way to steward your whole life and your whole being. Yeah. I mean, I think of that. The the Luke inversion of the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yes. I mean, this woman is is also poor financially, it looks like, but the, the poverty of spirit that's actually a blessing. Yeah, that she doesn't sort of, you know, seem to look up like the, you know, the Pharisee and the publican, where the Pharisee, the the publican, you know, the prays like with his head down and humbly, and the the Pharisee kind of looks up like God, thank like thank, thank you that I'm not like that one over there. Mm-hmm. You know, she seems like the one that prays in a way that really shows she knows what's going on she gives the way she seems like she knows what's going on in relationship to her poverty and god's abundance so she doesn't seem consumed by what's going on around her she doesn't seem consumed by what other people are seeing what other people are saying she is solely focused in that moment on herself and her god she's solely focused on you know this is this is just what i bring um and it's not an assessment. It's not a judgment of it. And you, like we know in the entire scene, everybody's watching this. We know that the judgment's happening and yet her heart just doesn't, it's not focused there. It is just focused solely on the priest who is worshiping day and night on her behalf with her in that moment. It's a beautiful scene. Yeah, there's this, beautiful scene. there's this story I sometimes tell in sermons. It's Spurgeon, the great British preacher, used to tell it. And he talked about this, <laughs> farmer in this old medieval kingdom who's this poor peasant farm surf kind of par- farmer who he grew this gigantic carrot in his garden like this freakish kind of circus carrot and weekly in the king you know the king this medieval king would have these the lord would have these you know the court would, you know the, the, he would entertain people at court and petitions and things and this this peasant brings this gigantic carrot and people all the nobles are scandalized why would he bring this and he says, King, you've always been good to uh, the people in this land. And you've always been, your your family's been good to my family. And you've been a just king. And I grew this carrot bigger than anything I'd ever seen grown. 
and I wanted you to have it. And the king got teary-eyed and was moved. He said, I'm going to give you your land. Like, you'll, you'll be a freedman. I, I give you your land. It was so moved. Well, the nobles were shocked. So next week at court, one of the nobles brings in this, this stallion from his stables, which are, you know, the finest in land. And he presents this gift to the king. And the king is completely unmoved. And he says, how could you be unmoved? You were brought to tears by the gift of this peasant farmer last week. And he said, no, no, the difference is the farmer gave me the carrot. You gave the horse to yourself. Oh. It, 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 the idea that that, that offering was, to, was not uh, out of this beauty of, 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 uh, you know, of, of the farmer's you know, spiritual poverty. That was, this was, you were trying to give it back to yourself. You know, if I give him, look at how great it's going to give. And that's really the difference, right? The, the heart. It's the nature of the heart. The motivation behind it. I mean, we have to ask some serious questions as people who say we are shaped by Jesus of Nazareth. Why are we doing the things we do? As pastors, we've got to ask our serious, some serious questions about our motivations. Why are we preaching on the things that we're preaching on? Why are we uh, favoring some passages over others that may be harder? Why are we allowing things to slip by in our churches the way they have? But I mean, the motivation of the heart when we come to worship, what are we doing? And why are the people coming to worship? Why are they there? I asked that question yesterday. Um, I was preaching on a Colossians 3 passage yesterday, and I just kind of asked people, you know, what is your motivation for coming to church? And we kind of did popcorn answers. And some people were like, uh, because I, I love it. I feel filled up when I leave here. And another person said, friends. And another person said, because it's what you're supposed to do. And you be, <laughs> you, you suddenly begin to realize the heart of worship that is existing in our churches today really is kind of misshapen, and it's not reflecting what Christ is calling us to. So it's, um, I was challenging them. I said, you know, would you take one for the team? And I kind of went on a graduated level. If I asked you to help out somebody and give 20 bucks to them one time, would you do it? Oh, yeah, I could do that. And we graduated all the way up to, would you let somebody use your car because they needed it for the day? Well, I don't know about that. (laughs) Would you allow somebody who lost their entire house to come and live with you for an indefinite amount of time? Oh, no. And you, you begin to see where the heart struggles for people with this command of, no, your entire life. Everything you have, your bank account, house, car, your gifts, your talents, everything you have, he gave you, and you're called to use according to his will. And that is, oh, we struggle so hard. That heart motivation is incredible. And I love what you said before when you come bringing the the brokenness, like the widow, and and come not from your position of pride, but humility. Because when we come that way, we're met by the one who, the scripture says, was rich but became poor for our sake. He meets us in the poverty and, yeah. and that's where the ble- the blessing is, the the, the beauty of, of of receiving from Christ. Yeah. Thanks, Heidi, for doing this, and blessings to you and your preaching this week. You as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Heidi for coming back on the podcast. And thanks to you again for listening to Synaxis. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.